Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with composers, songwriters, producers, and scientists about the creative process of making music. I had a chance to talk with two TV composers recently, so I thought I'd make this a special double feature episode. First you'll hear from Phil Eisler, the composer behind ABC's Revenge, Fox's Empire, and the new Lifetime show about reality TV called Unreal. Phil shares what he learned in working with a live orchestra for each episode of Revenge, and he talks about why that sound would never work in a show like Unreal. I think everything is context, really. The, the best piece of music you write in the wrong place instantly becomes the worst piece of music you've written. Next, you'll hear from Matt Quayle, who got his start as a dance music producer and remixer. Mac also created this excellent intro theme for this episode. We talk about his process scoring the TV show's American Horror Story and Mr. Robot. Mac explains how his time as a dance music producer has influenced his TV and film scoring. With dance music, the entire track is at one tempo. So you're not really going to speed it up to build momentum, but instead you're going to add layers that create this energetic lift. And so I use that same technique in uh, film and, and television scoring. Before we begin, I have a few announcements. This episode is brought to you by my generous Patreon patrons and by lynda.com. Lynda is an online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you improve your creative, technical, and business skills. For a free 10-day trial, go to lynda.com quest. And that's Linda with a Y. Now, a moment to thank my patrons. This week, I've written a jingle for my patron, Luke Thomas. You can check out his music at lukethomasmusic.com. Since he lives in Liverpool, I wanted to try writing in the style of the Beatles. When he was younger, Luke had a dream that he could write music and live free. Now he's an everyday composer and he'll write a song for you. And if you're Thanks again, Luke. Stick around till the end of the episode for another edition of Charlie's Music Production Lessons, where I'll explain my process in trying to emulate the Beatles for this jingle. Now let's get to my talk with Phil Eisler. Hi, Phil. Hi, man. What's going on? Oh, not too much. I'm just out here in Minnesota. Nice. Yeah. Whereabouts in Minnesota? Uh, in Minneapolis. Oh, I love Minneapolis, man. Yeah? Yeah. You've been... Well, you know, came life... to visit? Yeah, well, life of a touring musician, you know. Oh, right, yeah. <clears throat> um, I played there with a, a few different people, but I played with uh, a Robbie Williams. It was all a long time ago, so last time I was in Minneapolis was probably like 2000 or something. So are we in your studio here? We're in my home studio, yeah, with a couple of grumpy dogs. <laughs> this is my uh, studio in my house. I have a couple of different studios, but I built this one because basically I uh, wasn't going to see my daughter grow up otherwise. So. <laughs> yeah, I, it's still kind of baffles me how you can have the time management to write all the stuff you do. <laughs> <laughs> how do you manage your time writing for so many shows and films never well enough but i'm sort of always striving to make it a bit better i mean it's funny because when i was a kid wanting to be a musician sort of the last thing i wanted was any kind of structure to my life i want to be free man and write music you know and it turns out that that's about the least creative thing in the world for me at least because if you just hang around you know then you just hang around whereas i sort of find that yeah, I'm like the world's worst early riser. I hate getting up early in the morning, but it 
somehow, and maybe that's by virtue of having had a kid or just having so many different things on my plate, I, I find that sort of early morning is a pretty creative time for me, actually. Used to be late at night, and it still sort of can be, but now if you get up at six in the morning, then, you know, I'd like to see anyone being creative <laughs> at one in the morning, because at that point, all you want to do is go to bed. Yeah. I have a, a really great crew, and they keep me sort of fairly regimented, as you have to be, you know, because just the logistics of doing three shows and a film, um, which I'm, you know, I'm doing a movie at the moment, and actually right now it's not that bad. Right now I'm just doing one movie, the TV craziness doesn't start for a few months. Sure. And uh, it's it's great. <laughs> it's lovely. But yeah. for the most part, that's sort of not, you know, the reality of the business anymore. I think all of us, by us, I mean sort of the composers in the community, I think we all really have to do multiple projects to survive these days. Yeah. So one thing that struck me in an interview um, with soundworks collection you're talking about how you think that composers should not spend any time replicating other composers voices um which i think is like a tempting thing to do for a film composer or you mean it's tempting for them to copy someone tempting else to, yeah to copy someone else because i think composers maybe are afraid that if they do something that's too unique, yeah. it's just going to get Well, taught. I mean, I think, I, I do think it's mostly based out of fear. And, and not to say that, you know, we're not all going to end up doing something that sounds similar and that, you know, that's sort of, I, I, I get that. And you're going to run into all sorts of things like, you know, temp music and people asking you to do something in the temp music. And that itself is a sort of a, a hot button subject because you, you know, you never want to be ripping off temp music. And there are times that, you know, producers might try and push you in that direction. And it, that's sort of the one time to stand your ground a little bit. Or, you know, it, if anything, have a strong voice so that you can do something that, that maybe replicates the emotion they've got there from the temp, but is your own voice. It's It's really hard to do. It's not just musically, but obviously... At that point, you're dealing with, you know, personalities and stuff, which is another interesting part of a composer's job is really sort of juggling personalities, having to deal with, you know, I mean, sometimes you're really as much of a director's confidant as you are a composer or, or a producer's, you know. Sometimes you can be several people's confidant on the same project, which, you know, can get weird, but happens. But, yeah, I mean, look, as far as, you know, I, there's all sorts of reasons you might be trying to do the same thing as somebody else either out of fear or even out of fascination you know of wanting to sort of see if you can pull that off or whatever but at the end of the day you have to ask yourself why you're making music in the first place and you know what is it you really want to do what is it you really want to achieve so as a film composer the first thing you've got to do is service the film the film has to work, otherwise you're worthless. So it, it's, you know, you could be the best musician, the best composer in the world, but if you're not servicing the film, then then you're not there for any decent reason. And then, you know, I guess the question comes up, why do people hire you for a project in the first place? And as tempting as it is to try and cover all your bases, and, and, and you know, I certainly know plenty of people who are working in the industry on the basis of being able to copy other people's styles and stuff like that. But it's very, very hard to ever break out and do something of your own that way because no one's going to recognize what you do. It's funny, the things that I've done that would be considered quote unquote wrong in a lot of scoring terms is almost always what I get hired back to do by somebody mm. else. They go, oh, what? can you do that again? And I, I, you know, like writing certain cues and going, Oh, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. <laughs> and then, you know, then two months later, somebody calls me up and goes, oh, that, that weird thing you did on that one cue. Can you do that for me? You know? So can you I, think well, of a specific example of one of those cues? Well, I mean, one of the first, never mind cues, an entire film. I, you know, one of the first films I really got hired to do, was a little indie film called Humboldt County. And 
I remember it was between me and some much bigger name composers than I. Um, but by much bigger name composers, I mean composers who had ever done a film before or any <laughs> kind of no. I hadn't, you know, I'd done maybe like a couple of documentaries and little things, but I really wasn't any kind of seasoned film composer. And so, because I thought I had absolutely zero chance of getting the gig anyway, I just thought I'm just going to go in and speak from my heart. And I said something to the effect of, you know, they played me the temp score, which was incredibly safe kind of worked but it was cheesy and you know it was exactly what you'd expect and I, I and they said well what did you think you know what did you think of the temp score and I said I think it's a load of bollocks I think your film's beautiful and I think you made a lovely piece of work and I think the temp really lets it down and I think you know if you're going to try and do something and I actually said in the interview which I've ever said since I said well you just put your balls on the chopping block here lads you know <laughs> uh, don't know what I was thinking but anyway they hired me and I remember thinking, God, I wish I had the balls to do that when I was interviewing for a job I actually thought I had a chance of getting, you know. <laughs> and it's ironic because I think when you think you're going to get something, you know, your instinct is to play it safe. When for the most part, I think people are looking, people tend to, to you know, if you think about people making, especially their first movie, but, you know, any movie really, they're looking for something unique to bring. I don't think anyone sets out. Well, no one who's any kind of serious artist on any level sets out to make a copycat of something somebody else has done. They all want something unique. They all want it to work, but they all want, you know, they all want to be somebody that discovers this new sound, this, hey, nobody else has got this on their film, you know, whatever. It's the same for me, searching for new musical ideas. It's the same for anybody who does anything creative. So wherever possible... Be you, I think, is is the the axiom. Yeah, I just watched your first episode of Unreal, mm-hmm. um, and I I'm curious how that works for you as because it's kind of like a meta TV show about making reality TV about like, making a TV show. Yeah. Yeah. So, are you composing the music for the TV show? It's within the TV show. Well, both. Yeah. So how, how do those things work together? Well, it, it was interesting because one of the first things I got in terms of footage was the opening scene, which is the TV show within the TV show. So the first thing I had to write was a sort of cheesy reality TV show cue, and I, and I couldn't get it cheesy enough. <laughs> I just couldn't. Um, in the end, I, I that was something where I reached out to a friend and had to get some help from a guy who does reality TV and go, Okay, what the f do I do here? I don't know. You know, I've played it to the producers a number of times and they're like, No, more cheese, pour on the cheese. Like you gotta you know, go watch the and I'd I'd watched a few of those reality shows. I, I could only stomach it for about ten seconds at a time before I wanted to scratch my eyeballs out of my face, you know. So I, I guess I didn't research my subject quite well enough. <laughs> but in the end we got it there. Okay, here we go. Opening night, everlasting, all right? Let's give them something that they want. Ponies, princesses, romance, love, I don't know. It's all a bunch of crap anyways. Let's go, people. The girls are about to arrive. Are you feeling nervous? I wouldn't say so, no. Excited, then? Absolutely. Good. I'm ready. Well, that's good, because here they come. And then, you know, the rest of the score, as you saw, you know, is much more of this sort of very sort of electronica-ish. You shot footage on him without a signed contract? He said he wanted to show it to his lawyers in London or some nonsense, all right? What was I supposed to do? We have seven and a half hours before sunrise. Can only shoot in hard night, and I need a freaking show. That's great. So, so, I, so I what? I have no leverage? Oh, just make something up. Do your job. You do not want to piss me off on your first day back, okay? Just go get our show pony now. Damn it. It's interesting because in some respects it could be seen as relatively cold. It's all sense. It's it's live in the sense that I play everything, but it's not a live orchestra or a bunch of musicians in a room. But for some reason within the context of the show, that felt much more authentically emotional than something like an orchestral score, which would have been completely wrong in that show. 
um, would have made it into a horrible, cheesy soap opera, pretty much no matter what you do. I think as soon as you heard strings in that context, it'd just be like, oh, God. Um, there's nothing an orchestra could do for that show <laughs> that would be right. I think everything is context, really. The, the best piece of music you write in the wrong place instantly becomes the worst piece of music you've written. And that's the, the aspect of film scoring, I think, they should be teaching in film scoring programs and perhaps they do. I don't know. I've never done one, but, but I think that's the, that should be taught above all else is, is without context. Your music is, is nothing in this situation. Yeah. What advice could you give composers on spotting a film or a TV show? Like how do you know where Ooh, interesting is question. a good spot? That's a good question. Nobody ever asked me questions like that. The, I, I was, how do you get into the business? I don't fucking know. It's just that. <laughs> um, the best advice for spotting. Well, without wanting to sound all Star Wars about it, use your instincts. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you can always learn more, but I think you have to trust your dramatic instinct from the perspective of what would you want to hear if you were watching this as a movie? I, mean, I, I think there's never anything wrong with approaching material as though you were a fan. You know, would this piece of music make you cringe there or would it pull you further into the drama? The film composer's job is really all about helping the audience suspend disbelief. So hopefully the material reaches you in somewhat of a complete state to where they're already going to be able to do that and you're not trying to paper over sort of cracks you know where, where people are calling you and going could you just yeah that that part doesn't really work so could you just solve that with music you know but you know really think about why the music is there well, one thing i would suggest to anybody who's doing this for the first time or first couple of times is to not get too sort of insanely caught up in the microcosm of each scene because if you think about the way scenes are structured in most films and TV is there tends to be, now especially in, in serialized TV, scenes almost end up having their own repetitive structure to where, you know, a conversation happens, some kind of problem comes up, they talk about the problem, they solve the problem, or you go on to the next phase of, right, well, what are we going to do about this problem? I mean, really, that's what most films are. So, uh, you know, what I always do is is try and, pull back and see if things are working in the context of the overall film or episode rather than, you know, in each scene, if you just looked at it as a standalone scene, then conceivably you could have music coming in at almost the same point every time. And that becomes very, very hard to listen to, uh, to watch in a movie or a, or a TV show, because literally, you know, you would have music coming in in every scene and it doesn't make sense. Anything that becomes extremely repetitive in, in a movie you know, and predictable sort of weighs it down and makes it feel very leaden. So I would just encourage people who are starting to do this to not forget that they're doing either a film or even, you know, if it's episodic TV, don't forget that you're doing a season of episodes too. So if you're thinking in terms of themes and an arc for the overall thing, you know, you have to remember that each episode might not be a microcosm uh, and a sort of standalone thing. It might be, you know, part of, say, a 10-part, 12-part, 22-part movie, in a way. Yeah. So, uh, your show, Revenge, just finished up after mm -hmm. four seasons. and That was a, yeah, that was a nice yeah. job four years. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it's really cool. You got to work with an orchestra each week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. It was How, fantastic. What would you say you learned over the course of that time working with an orchestra oh, jesus so much you know i had done orchestral scores before but i don't think there are many situations and fortunately i'm in the same situation with empire now where we do a live orchestra as well um you know revenge was so fun simply because there were so many different situations that you would get to score action scenes. There were, you know, big sweeping love scenes or very small dramatic sort of moments and weird dream sequences, flashbacks, God knows what. So first of all, it was like scoring a big movie every week. So it, it certainly taught me process. Um, also helped me get my crew really honed to the point where, you know, I know we can deliver a movie in a week if that has to happen. Also, really, the best part of it for me was learning what I couldn't, couldn't expect of the orchestra as 
a composer, as a conductor, as a storyteller, basically. And what I could expect them to do musically, physically, in a three-hour session. You know, I just got to experiment with so many things. And as I was studying scores while that was going on, there often seemed to be a symbiosis with it. You know, like I remember there was a point where I was sort of obsessing over Rite of Spring for a little while and studying the score. And, you know, lo and behold, a producer comes up and says, well, we've got this whole arc of episodes where Emily, the lead character, goes into a fugue state and it's going to be weird and it's going to be... I was like, really? (laughs) You know? (laughs) So I got the chance to try out all this crazy harmonic material and... uh, the nice thing about film, and I, I think at some point I read this in an old Bernard Herrmann interview too, where he said, you know, you could really score a scene in a movie with the most sort of avant-garde modern concert techniques that you couldn't nail people to the floor to listen to in most circumstances unless they were like really avid concert goers. But in a film, if it makes the scene work, they'll completely buy it. You could be writing the weirdest, most atonal shit, <clears throat> you know, that if you played it out of context, they would just you know, turn it off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You get to do all of this crazy stuff. So so really for me, it was sort of, it was a gig on the one hand. Uh, I was learning a lot of practical things. It was also like, you know, the most intensive college course you could ever imagine. It was sort of like doing a music degree upside down, really. It was, it was <laughs> a lot of fun. Do you have a favorite chord or chord <laughs> progression? <laughs> oh, you know, C, G, B. No, although <laughs> I, I did say once once I was done with uh, Revenge that I would never use an augmented chord again ever, but <laughs> or, a, or a major minor seventh chord. Um, that has turned out not to be true, funnily enough. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there was certainly a lot of that. Like, you know, harmonically, Revenge certainly resembled a lot of old film noir and stuff. And, you know, I think it's safe to say there was a lot of not only Herman sort of esque ideas, but really sort of the this, this stuff that came, that he came up through. So, you know, Stravinsky and Ives probably for the, you know, he was very into Ives and the, the weirder end of things. Um, but favorite chord? I don't know. What's a favorite versus most overused? Same <laughs> <laughs> thing. I was reading that Requiem for David, the cue mm. from Revenge. Uh, mm. You said there is not a dry eye during the first take of oh, the recording. God, yes. Yeah, that was a heavy experience, actually, because not only was it, you know, the end of, you know, almost half a decade's worth of work, and uh, we had actors, producers, writers, the whole crew. I mean, it was more like a party than a recording session. There had to be 50 people just in the booth, and then, you know, there was an orchestra of 50, 60 odd people. And when it does get into the bit where David dies and there's that big sweeping sort of motif, it was one of those situations that I've had a couple of times during the series where not only did they just nail it the first time, but also, you know, if you've ever gone to a classical concert or sat in front of an orchestra when they're at full tilt, it's a pretty powerful thing. I mean, that's 50 or 60 virtuoso players sitting in front of you breathing life into something that was just a sketch before and and secondly you know the music's written to be emotional so you it 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 really sort of speaks to the power of live orchestra versus samples you know it was one thing as a demoed cue you know with samples it was completely another hearing real emotion being poured into this thing by 60 people and and uh yeah i just i completely lost it after the first take (laughs) up
have a great bit of iPhone footage that one of my assistants took um, filming, I think, pretty much the whole queue and then just sort of panning over to the control room. And, you know, it's silent because it's through soundproof glass, but 50 people just going (laughs) (laughs) through the through the glass and and me going, put that on the talkback. I wanted the orchestra to hear it, you know. (laughs) Yeah, it was was that was a great recording session. What do you think are some of the musical characteristics that really tug at people's heartstrings? You know, again, I think it's context. I think, for instance, if you had put Requiem for David into an episode of Unreal, even in an emotional scene, it would be comical. But in Unreal, what was far more emotional is when the the music would pull back and just let the acting kind of do its thing and let the emotions speak for themselves. So, again, it really just depends on what it is you're scoring. Yeah. On my podcast, I have a question chain going from one composer to the next. Oh, nice. Uh, So, the last composer, Noah Kiesecker, was wondering, what's something in the music world that you love but you also feel critical about? Something in the music world. Would you you mean music or music um, business? Um, I think he meant the music itself. Um, I would just say lack of curiosity uh, to find new stuff. You know, anytime you put it this way, anytime you feel safe, you're probably getting boring. <laughs> I yeah. think. I think any time you get to a place where ah, everything's working, then you're probably repeating yourself, you know. So I think it's that oddness of of sort of, you know, having to constantly be uncomfortable in, in order to create something interesting, really. Yeah. Do you have a question for my next guest then? I mean, I'm tempted to just say, you know, what are your favorite color trousers for composing? But um <laughs> Uh, uh, <laughs> all right my question is what's the most creative time of day for you morning night time what cool well cool, thanks man. so much phil yeah, thank you it was a pleasure if you'd like to connect with phil eisler visit eisler.com spelled i-z-l-e-r there you'll find his social media links and links to the tv shows he's scored after a brief commercial break we'll be back with matt quayle Time for a little plug of lynda.com. I thought I'd do a search for orchestra to see what videos came up, and I found one called Reference Values from the Best Orchestra Halls from the course Foundations of Audio Reverb. It's a fascinating course for any audio production nerds out there. In this specific video, the professor talks about how to set your reverb parameters to emulate the best-sounding orchestra halls out there. Apparently there was a study done and three halls were considered the most pleasing to musicians and listeners. The Boston Symphony Hall, Musikverein in Vienna, and Concertgebouw in Amsterdam. Let's take a listen to a bit of this course to find out what these concert halls have in common. We see that these three concert halls have a mid-frequency reverb time of around two seconds or just under. So two seconds is a really useful reference number. In addition to that approximately two-second middle-frequency reverb time, there's another interesting trend to the successful halls. The low frequencies resonate longer than the mids, while the high-frequency reverb times are shorter. Pre-delay is another essential parameter. The pre-delay of these orchestral halls all hover very close to 20 milliseconds. That's the amount of time it takes a large, great-sounding orchestra hall to go from direct sound to that full, dense beginning of reverberation. Less than 15 milliseconds or greater than 30, and the halls are not considered successful. If you're interested in courses like these, try Lynda free for 10 days by visiting lynda.com quest. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot quest. Now, let's get to my talk with Matt Quayle. So I was just watching the pilot to Mr. Robot. Aha. That's really cool. The music in that was very nice, too. Thank you. Could you uh, describe how you got involved in that project and what that is? Well, you know, it's a drama 
about a computer hacker created by uh, Sam Esmail. And uh, Sam Esmail and a gentleman named Adam Penn have been good friends for a long time. Adam Penn, you know, he edited a bunch of the American Horror Story Freak Show episodes that I scored. And uh, he's also a writer. And so he got hired to be a writer on Mr. Robot. And he uh, recommended me to Sam. And I ended up uh, scoring the pilot and now the whole the whole series. Cool. I was thinking about it as I was watching that there's so many moments in that show that could be very hard to tell what emotion you're supposed to be feeling when you're just seeing like the guy coding. But your music just nicely fills in the emotion. <laughs> so, well, thanks. It was it was a really uh, and is because we're still working on it. Um, it's been a really uh, enjoyable project. You know, my background is is really in electronic music. So it's been fun to just sort of immerse myself in synthesizer sounds and not trying to imitate real instruments or, you know, it's just very electronic. Yeah, what's your setup for doing synth stuff? I mean, recently it's it's mostly just uh, in the box, as they say, all in the computer, virtual instruments. I mean, I do have vintage hardware synths as well. But um, I found that the deadlines are so tight into television that the extra time required to use the external synths isn't often there. And so it's much quicker and, and sounds almost as good to use the virtual versions. Sure. How long would you say it takes to score an episode of that show? You know, it's it's a little hard to say at this point. With a new show, it always takes longer in the beginning as you're crafting the sound. And then as each episode comes, you know, it gets a, it gets a little faster. Because now, now you have a palette to pull from. You have some themes. You have different things. But all those need to be created right at the beginning. And so for the pilot, I mean, we spent a good a good three weeks on it which is longer than we usually have for for an episode of TV. Sure. There was um, one cue in particular that in that pilot uh, that I thought was interesting. It was kind of like these atonal notes, and it kind of reminded me of, I think it starts actually when he's printing off like the maps and info about the uh, F Society, and I kind of was it made me think of like printer noises just pitched at different pitches. I don't know what synth you were using for that, but yeah, you know, there there wasn't a conscious choice to put in some sounds that were like printer noises, but uh, I'm certainly in the back of my mind, there's this thought of like, well, oh, okay, maybe this synth motif can somehow resemble a sound that evokes a computer or something that comes out of a computer. So mm-hmm. not not trying to be too obvious with it, but just to do something, have something about it that's slightly computer-like. Yeah. One thing I was kind of curious about is how you approach building momentum in film scores or even I know you've done a ton of pop songs and and like in the film Drive for example when you're working on that with Cliff Martinez yes yeah how do you build momentum throughout the length of a movie because it seems like it would be tough to do that in an action movie or action scene or something so you're talking about over the over the length of the entire film, or just like within one scene, um, how to build momentum? Uh, well, I guess within one scene. Well, you know, my history. Uh, so my earlier career was was in the music business, and I I was a a dance remixer and producer. So I made a lot of dance music, and 
certainly uh, there's a, there's an element to that, um, which which was a lot about building momentum or building energy. And with dance music, for the most part, you're set at a, at a tempo. The entire track is at one tempo. So you're not really going to speed it up to build momentum, but instead you're going to add layers that create this energetic lift. And so I use that same technique in uh, film and, and television scoring where I'll stay at a constant tempo, but then I just keep adding more layers, uh, maybe doubling up a rhythm. And it almost feels like it gets faster, but it's, but it doesn't. And then sometimes, too, it is appropriate that you just speed it up. And that, of course, will usually give it more momentum as well. How about the mixing side of it? Like, are there specific effects or filters or things that you use to ramp up momentum or energy? Well, um, that word filter that you used is, uh, is a big tool for me. And that, that also came out of uh, making dance music. It was a really big tool for dance music. And so, you know, a filter is, in an audio sense, is the device that, um, you know, it, it filters out frequencies. And so if you use, say, a low-pass filter, which is letting the lower frequencies pass, and it's filtering out the high frequencies, when you've put that on a sound, the sound is more muted, As you open the filter up and start letting more of the higher frequencies through, the sound gets brighter. It gives it more energy. It can help build momentum. I mean, certainly if you're doing it on several different types of sounds at once, over the course of, you know, 30 seconds or, or, or 15 seconds, and all these sounds are filtering up, it just gives the effect of increasing the drama or tension or momentum. And um, I, I really love that as a, as a tool and a technique. Yeah. One thing that kind of changed how I produce music, I guess I was sort of doing this instinctively, but I heard somewhere like, you should always have your fingers on the faders or, you know, envelope faders and stuff to change the effects over time throughout your track to keep everything more interesting. I've heard that too and, and try to um, apply that. You know, certainly, like, if, if you have a particular sound that, let's say, it's just playing one note or it's playing a very simple you know, going back and forth between two notes that are changing very slowly. Um, it's nice to have some other subtle variations in it as well. So that could be playing with the filter, playing with the volume, playing with other effects. And it just sort of breathes this extra element of life into it that this sound is subtly changing rather than just being static. Yeah. So having produced like 41 number one billboard hits, dance hits. Um, what's, are there some secrets that you have that people might benefit from? I mean, I think that, you know, part, part of the reason that uh, so many of those records that I was involved in did make it to the top of the dance chart, you know, it had to do with the song and the artist. I mean, it's, almost guaranteed or certainly was then that if you're remixing a Madonna song, it's a good chance it's going to be the number one dance record. Sure. <laughs> and a, a lot of the other pop artists that I, that I worked with, I mean, many of those records, the remixes went to number one. And when we were doing that, we would always try to respect the integrity of the song 
the best that we could. Now, this was back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and remixing was a little different then, and dance music certainly has changed a lot since then. But um, the style that we were working in was very much about having the full vocal, having the full song. And so we would really try to do something that, that respected that. So it sounded like, the remix sounded like, a, like this, this could have been the, the original version of the song. I mean, it was totally different than the original, but it could have been. It sounded that natural rather than just some sort of track where the vocals have been put on top of it. So when you hear one of these songs that you're going to remix, is it kind of like you know the vocal will stay the same, but you can do anything else you want with the backing track? I mean, that was pretty much the parameters back then. You know, the genre that we were working in was mostly house music. So the four on the floor kick and, you know, within a certain tempo range. But then after that, yeah, it was we could do whatever we wanted. I'm sure it's hard to pick a favorite, but is there one that you're especially fond of? Um, you know, this came up the other day with some friends on Facebook and... um there was a mix that I think was, was one of my favorites. It was for uh, Everything But The Girl. Uh, the song called uh, Temperamental. And I'm a huge fan of, of Tracy Thorne's vocals. So it was really great to be able to, to be able to work with those. And there was just something creatively that clicked on that particular remix. One of the interesting things, arrangement-wise, was that, um, you know, usually the chorus is like this big moment in the song. Things are building up, to, and then the chorus is like a peak. But uh, for this one, the first, we, we, we build up, build up, and we get to the first chorus, and then we completely dropped everything out. So now it's like the vocal and one keyboard sound or something. And... And I thought that was pretty unexpected, and, and, and it did really work on the dance floor. should ask you a little bit about American Horror Story. What was your approach to that? Once again, you know, it's a collaborative effort. So Ryan Murphy and his team, they had some ideas about what it should sound like. And um, out of our conversations, I wrote this piece, which we ended up calling 50s Sci-Fi Strings something that you might hear in a, a sci-fi movie from the 50s. And that became a big sound for the season. It's basically a very simple high string motif, which is doubled with a, a theremin. Nice. 50 sci-fi. <laughs> 50 sci-fi. And, and that's all on top of some slightly electronic pulsing. Were there any things you tried that didn't work out in the season? Wow, that didn't work out. There must be. It's not coming to me. <laughs> one of the one of the great things about the um, the process 
on that show was that if I wrote something that did not work for the particular scene I wrote it for, nine times out of ten, we found a place for it in a scene later. So almost nothing that I wrote didn't get used, which was which was cool. pretty unusual, actually. It was a little a bit, a bit freeing to have that knowledge because I knew I would just write something and get as creative as I wanted, and if it didn't go for this, that's okay because it's probably going to get used somewhere else. Cool. I saw that you were one of six people to be invited to Skywalker Ranch for a music uh i don't know what you'd call it but uh, it was the, the sundance composers lab oh yeah okay could you tell me what happened there and what you learned from that it's a lab they've been doing for a couple of decades at least a long time and you know they choose six composers each year to participate and so we go there we stay there for a little over two weeks, and we're just completely immersed in all aspects of composing for film. They have what they called advisors who would come and work with us for a few days each. These people are like some of the biggest composers working today. Thomas Newman, Harry Gregson-Williams, Mark Isham, uh, Hator Pereira and George Clinton and they would come and they would give us a scene from a film that they had scored and they would not play it with the score but they would play the scene with the dialogue and effects and they would give us essentially all the information and instruction they had been given when they were hired to score the film and now we went back into our rooms and scored the scene and then like a day and a half later, came back, watched everyone's version, and then heard the original composer's version, and everyone sort of got critiqued and discussed it. It was quite a fascinating process. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Were there any times when they would say like, oh, you did this better than I would have, or something like that? I never heard that. <laughs> I, don't know sure. if, I don't know if anyone thought it or not but um uh it, it was really interesting to see how different you know six versions of the same scene everybody had a different take on it are any of these scores you did at the lab available anywhere or that that'd be kind of cool i think to see like all these six different versions of these s scenes but you, yeah you know it would be but you know because all of these were like big films that had been released and and you know oh, owned yeah. by <laughs> studios and whatnot we weren't allowed to um I, you know i can play the music i can do anything i want with the music but i can't use the visual sure well that'd be cool if sundance did like a little thing on that if they somehow could get rights to those. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, it's a great thing. I, I, I It was kind of life-changing. I feel so fortunate that I was able to go, and I think it was the third time I had applied. Because hmm. it's very, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people apply every year and, and for six slots. And the one of the uh, composers had, a, it was her seventh time applying. Wow. So they like it when you keep applying. Do you think it was they liked your music demos eventually on the third time applying or something? Or? I, I'm not really sure. It's a little mysterious to me. I don't know exactly what they're, you know, how they're making their decision. But sure. uh, some something clicked. Sure. Well, uh, Mac, I know you probably don't have too much time here, but I have, I have a question chain going on my podcast where the previous composer asks a question for the current composer. So the last composer I interviewed was Phil Eisler, and he was wondering, what's the most creative time of the day for you? That is a good question. I have not 
totally figured that one out. But I'm going to say that often it's in the evening. It's later in the evening. Maybe I'm, I'm a little bit tired. Um, I'm not thinking as much. So that helps to be and th- and that tired? that can help just because it just loosens me up a little bit. Huh. I'm, um, and then my second I'm gonna I'm gonna give two answers and the second one is my most creative time is at, when the deadline is looming <laughs> because I don't have a choice. The creation has to happen, and most of the time it does. How do you train to be good at? being creative when there's a deadline looming i think the training is just having the deadlines because there's there's no choice there's no like saying hey can i deliver this tomorrow it's like it has to be done and having that experience repeatedly happen i think is the training for me yeah well do you have a question for my next composer Yes, I do. How do you balance your composing work and all the time that it demands of you and your personal life? Maybe family, relationship, or, or, or whatever it is. How, how do you balance that? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> how do you balance that? I'm still figuring that one out, too. But um, I have a one-year-old daughter now. Oh, okay. Cool. And so um, she helps me balance it a little because I, I really like spending time with her. So I make it, I make it a priority to, to spend some time with her uh, throughout the day. And I also try to be as efficient as I can when I'm working so that I, you know, I get as much done and then I can have some, some family time as well. Cool. Any last parting thoughts, um, advice to other composers, maybe? The one piece of advice I have at the moment is essentially just what my path has been. I have done a lot of work for other composers. And my first job was working for Michael Levine on the TV show Cold Case. And during that time, I met Cliff Martinez... And I've worked on maybe 12 films with him. And I find that role has been really great to learn, um, to make a little bit of a name for myself. And, and, and it's just like that's been my path that led me to scoring American Horror Story. When you say work for another composer, what kind of things are you doing? Well, typically my role is, would, would be called the additional composer. And so I'm collaborating with them on uh, a number of cues on the project. Maybe it would start with them writing a basic theme or sketch of what they thought should happen in the, in the scene. And I would take it, develop it more, write a little bit more, give it back to them. Um, they would say, oh, I like this, I don't like that, change it, I would change it. We would go back and forth a few times until we had something that we thought was ready to present to the the director. Cool. I always challenge composers to create an intro theme for their episode, but I know you're a pretty busy guy, so if you happen to be interested in doing that, I'm putting the episode up next Wednesday. What does the, the intro theme, how, the, how long does it need to be? Uh, it could be as short as like 10 seconds. Um, 10 seconds. Yeah. I could probably fit a 10 second cue into my schedule. Okay, cool. It'd be a, a you know, a relief after doing a, like a four minute, a four minute cue. <laughs> sure. <laughs> cool. Well, I look forward to that. Okay, great. Cool. Well, thanks Mac so much for being on the show here. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Yeah, definitely. Mac went above and beyond the 10 seconds I asked him for, and I'd like to play his 60-second cue in its entirety before we get to the rest of the show. (laughs) 
Thanks for meeting the challenge, Mac. To check out more of Mac Quayle's work, visit macquayle.com. That's spelled M-A-C-Q-U-A-Y-L-E. I highly recommend checking out the pilot episode of USA Network's Mr. Robot, which is free to watch on YouTube. Thanks to Jan and Davidoff at CW3PR for arranging these interviews with Phil and Mac. Our question of the week is, what's the most creative time of day for you? Chime in at forum.composerquest.com. Now, time for another... There are a lot of classic Beatles techniques that I subconsciously channeled in writing a jingle for my patron, Luke Thomas. It's only afterwards, in working on this music production lesson, that I actually analyzed what makes this song Beatles-like. Since it's pretty short, let's take a listen to my full mix and see if you can pick out the characteristic Beatles sounds. When he was younger, Luke had a dream that he could write music and live free. Now he's an everyday composer and he'll write a song for you. And if you're dreaming too, to make your dreams come true, just do what I started the song, as I often do, by fumbling around on some guitar chords, and sometimes I accidentally find a nice progression. As you'll hear in my rough first demo, I played an unexpected F minor chord while I was in the key of C. This minor four chord sounded very Beatles-y to me, so it ended up in my final tune. Now he's an everyday composer. Later I did a little research and found out that Paul McCartney used the minor four chord quite a bit, and he said that going from C to F to F minor was the normal thing to do. Once I had the chord progression figured out, I recorded the acoustic guitar part, and I added a little grace note flourish at the beginning that I knew came from somewhere in my Beatles memory. I scoured my Beatles collection trying to find where I got that intro guitar strum, and I discovered it's in the song Things We Said Today. If you aren't familiar with it, give it a listen. That song has some of the coolest chord progressions and harmonies in it. Next, I added a drum part. I didn't really find an authentic Ringo drum sound, so I just chose a simple muffled sounding drum that wouldn't stand out too much in the mix. Rhythmically, I went for something simple with a classic double snare hit on beat 4. I knew the bass part would have to stand out as a melodic line if I was going to stay true to Paul's bass playing. That last part seemed particularly Paul-like, jumping up an octave and playing repeated eighth notes. You can hear something like that in the song Sun King. Strangely, after listening back to Sun King, I realized I played the exact same octave, E to E. I knew the vocal harmonies would be crucial in making it sound like a Beatles track. Paul and John always came up with creative harmonies that went beyond just following the melody a third away. So I stretched myself to come up with harmony lines that were independently interesting. Now he's an everyday composer. During the B section, I found myself singing a harmony that was very open sounding with parallel fourths. And if you're dreaming too, to make your dreams come true. I thought of these harmonies as emulating the later psychedelic Beatles sound. But actually, I realized they've been doing those weird harmonies from the very beginning. Just take a listen to Eight Days a Week, which uses some strange parallel fourth harmonies during the chorus. 
So once my vocals were recorded, I added quite a bit of slapback delay in honor of the later John Lennon vocal sound in songs like Instant Karma. Cause he's an everyday composer. I'd like to think my electric guitar part was in some way channeling George Harrison. I realized the ascending sixths at the beginning are a little bit similar to his guitar fills in something. Finally, the icing on the cake for me was adding a Mellotron sound, like in Strawberry Fields. A Mellotron was like an early sampler, where you could play a keyboard and it would trigger tape loops of different instruments. In Strawberry Fields, they triggered flute sounds. So for my track, I used a flute sample and played it back with my MIDI keyboard. I realized that it's sometimes hard not to rip off the Beatles, since they've influenced so much of our musical landscape. I remember when I was first writing songs, people would comment on how much they sounded like Beatles songs, even though I wasn't trying to emulate the band at all. It's been fun working on this song and trying to emulate their style, and trying to figure out which Beatles music my brain plucked these ideas from. I'll play you the final mix one last time, but first I should mention that you can find all my music production lessons at composerquest.com cmpl, or just search for Charlie's Music Production Lessons in your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening, and here's the Luke Thomas jingle one more time. When he was younger, Luke had a dream that he could write music and live free. Now he's an everyday composer and he'll write a song for you. And if you're dreaming too, to make your dreams come true, just do what Did you think I'd forgotten about our soap opera based on the musical mating game at darwintunes.org? Of course not. Now it's time for episode 5 of All My Musical Children. Last week we mated two musical loops to create this repetitive simpleton. Let's listen to the mating calls from other musical loops out in the Darwin Tunes universe. I ended up choosing this one from Rootsy. I liked the depth it had to it. So these two loops did their thing and made eight delightfully wacky children. They all seemed to have a similar rhythmic structure though, which they inherited from the Rootsy mate. Notice how they start with two sixteenth notes followed by an eighth note.
It was a tough choice to have to toss all these babies away except for one. In the end, I chose Child 8 to carry on the family name because it seemed to have the most compelling melody in it. Will our minor scale loop pass on its sad genes to the next generation? Tune in next week for All My Musical Children. No! More cheese! Pour on the cheese!